It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at lmfm.ie. Friday morning, the 12th of May. Good morning with much debate and discussion from now till 11am. This is Michael Reid on LMFM. Inflation eased last month. The latest figures from the CSO show an increase in inflation last month of 7.2%. It is an incredible increase in the cost of living on its own merit. But that 7.2% in April is less than the 7.7% in March. And it's also a drop in the right direction from a peak of 9 The price of groceries, however, continues to soar. In fact, grocery prices have increased by almost double that rate of 7.2% of general inflation last month to 13.1%. We're experiencing food food inflation. Um, We now expect to see uh, prices uh, moderate or or come down uh, in the coming weeks and months as they have with petrol and diesel. Uh, We're doing three things. Minister Richmond is meeting the retail forum today saying to the retailers very clearly that if your input costs are coming down now, we expect you to pass that on to consumers. We're engaging with the CCPC, which is the government body that has the power to investigate uh, price-fixing, cartel-like behaviour and and price signalling. And if you have any evidence of that, I expect you to present that to CCPC if you haven't done so already. They have those powers and we've written to them about uh, their responsibilities already, did so back in November. And government is acting as well, uh, helping people uh, with the cost of living. The Taoiseach speaking in uh, the Dáil a couple of days ago, and as Leo Bradker said, Neil Richmond, uh, the Minister for Retail, met with uh, the Retail Forum on Wednesday of this week. The IFA sought an urgent meeting with uh, the Minister, and that meeting took place with the IFA and other producers yesterday. We're joined by its President, Tim Cullinan, who's on uh, the line now. And a very good morning to you, Tim Cullinan, and thank you indeed for joining us on uh, the programme this morning. There is no doubting the fact that groceries have got very expensive and everybody wants to know why that is the case when inflation is falling otherwise. Uh, But it's not the fault of the farmers, you would argue, because you're actually earning less than would have been the case previously. Yeah, that's right, Michael, and good morning. And good morning to your listeners. All right, this story, excuse me, has been running now for the last uh, almost two weeks. And I suppose, look, to put this in context, and I suppose, look, it's important to say 
So I, I have empathy with, with the general consumer you know, where inflation, in particular food inflation, is currently at the moment. But obviously there's reasons around that. And I suppose you know, when I look at it and look back on the history of this, and if you, if you take a 20, go back over the last 20 years, the consumer price index was running at 20%. But the price of food actually uh, in that period fell 6%. And I suppose what happened then was we had the extraordinary circumstances, you know, this time last year with the war in Ukraine and all our input costs absolutely went through the roof to in the re- went up in the region of 40% at the time. And uh, there was a number of sectors at that time was facing uh, financial ruin, ruin, actually. And in particular, the, the horticulture sector, you know, any of the any of the sectors producing fresh produce, let's be horticulture, vegetables, fresh vegetables, and the poultry sector at the time, uh, trying to get up the price of eggs and, 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 and chicken was a huge struggle, and the pig meat sector, and the fresh uh, milk sector, liquid milk, uh, has always been very, very challenging. And, you know, what we've seen for years, and, you know, even last year, we got Jim Power to commission a report around the, the, the fresh uh, the vegetable sector, the horticulture sector, and you know, Jim has a great phrase, what he calls price compression. And in particular, since the discounts have entered, in, entered into the market here 10 or 15 years ago, and you know, those discounters now have anything up to 24% of the Irish retail market. And the, the nub of the problem here is you know, that retailers continue to use fresh produce as loss leaders within their stores and what they do then is obviously they increase other goods or dry goods as we call them you know and and then you see a race to the bottom or a price war and that's why we are very very concerned so we spent a lot of time and effort last year explaining our situation to retailers having protests outside retailers because um, all of those sectors were running the risk of going out of business. You know, if you look at the horticulture sector, we have approximately 100 farmers left in that sector. And in the last four or five years, we've lost a couple of hundred of those farmers. And, you know, if you, and if you look across Europe and wider in farming, we're losing 800 farmers a day. And obviously there's a reason for that because, um, you know, it's not financially viable. So from that point of view, um, and I suppose the other area then is, you know, everybody is striving to become more sustainable. We um, accepted last year when the government asked farmers to reduce emissions by 25%. We're on a journey doing that, and that is a very costly exercise. And at the time, we explained that to government. Government were saying there would be funding, but I've seen no funding come from government around you know, helping us deal with reducing our emissions. And, you know, if consumers want to be able to buy food that has a lower carbon footprint that is more sustainable and that's what we're all striving to do Michael mm-hmm. there's a cost associated with that as well Okay it's hard to understand uh, how shops would sell at a loss because there has to be a margin of profit being between what they buy a product for and what they sell it at because they're in business and their business is uh, to make money obviously but if there is to be a cut uh, in the margin between what shops pay for produce and it, what it costs the consumer, the next question is, who's going to pay for that? Uh, and do you believe that that will ultimately be the farmer? Yeah, and and you, you mentioned it in your intro there that we did meet with Minister Richmond last night, and uh, this is what I've been consistently saying as well. 
Um, for sure, what I'm saying is <clears throat> we can't have a situation where the farmer has to pay again. <clears throat> and this goes back again to government and uh, the Office of Fairness and Transparency and the food regulator. Because, like, we know what the farmer is receiving, we know what the consumer is paying, but the piece in the middle, nobody knows. And, and this is the challenge. And, you know, the, the Office of Fairness and Transparency or the food regulator, uh, this has been debated in the Dáil over the last two weeks. My understanding is it, it was uh, being debated again uh, on Tuesday or, or Wednesday night of this week. And they didn't conclude the debate on that, so it has to come back to the Dáil in two weeks' time again. But Minister Coveney intervened yesterday, and he made a statement saying that we need to get clarity to know where the margin is at, and I would welcome that. So I think it's important now that uh, our government ensures, when this bill is finalised, that uh, the person that is appointed then as a food regulator has the power to see where the margin is at, and then okay. that would bring fairness and transparency across the food supply chain. What's your uh, sense of that? Uh, do you believe that the shops have seen a, a drop in uh, their profits? Uh, do you believe that their profits are what they once were? Or, or do you pl- believe uh, that they're making more money than was the case before? Look, uh, I thought the straight answer, Michael, is I don't know. Or we can look at you know, some of the margins in, 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 in some of the retailers in the UK and, and you know, their, their massive um, margins that they are making. And look, if they have nothing to hide, why can't they, they, they come out and open and be transparent and show where the margin is going? So, so you you made a comment there about you know, why would they sell below uh, the, mm. the cost that they're buying for. But the reason to do this is to command market share. And you know, it's about getting the consumer in because if any of us go into a shop this morning to buy uh, a carton of milk or, or a tub of butter or whatever, you know, more than likely you're going to pick up a few more items again, yeah. whether it's the shampoo or the, the toothpaste or whatever. And so that's how they make their margin overall. It's over the entire basket of goods that a, a shopper will buy when they go into the store. Hmm. Of course, uh, and then the question is, if you introduce price caps, uh, because there's been a lot of calls uh, to cap the price of some staples, uh, particularly dairy products and bread, um, well, what would that mean? Uh, would that mean that farmers would receive less for the produce? Good. And uh, I mean, there was no price cap last year when we seen the cost of production go Joe, increase by anything up to 40, 50 percent. Uh, so, I mean, if you have a cap on one side, you're going to have a cap on the other. No, mm. Look, the market has to, at the end of the day, the market will find its own level, you know. But what's key here in all of this is the transparency. You know, mm. if we have transparency, well, then we can sit down and work together. Like, I've been dealing with retailers you know, on the fresh the fresh produce sectors for the best part of 20 years. And you know what I mean? Uh, trying to ensure to keep those sectors going. And it, it has been a massive challenge, Michael, mm. you know, over and back. And you know, I, I probably was on this program before when, when some of our farmers were up in Cavan Monaghan and to get uh, a cent or two on the eggs, they actually had to spend three or four nights outside two retailers up there. You know, that's the pressure that's coming from our side. And you know, that's mm. not good enough. Mm. And that's why we're losing farmers. So we need to be very careful here because we want to continue producing fresh produce in this country. Mm. Or we'll end up importing vegetables, all the vegetables from Spain. And government policy, as you know, is to want uh, to grow more at home. And you know, But the problem we have here in Ireland is obviously 
our our country and our economy is a more expensive place to produce than other countries around the world. But the one thing we have at our advantage is, you know, the climatic conditions here for producing food is second to done, you know, with our grass mm. growing and, 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 and our climatic conditions. Right. Uh, we've seen dramatic increases in energy costs. And as a result of uh, how more expensive it is uh, to heat or light our homes, the energy companies have seen extraordinary profits recorded. Uh, as a result of that, the government has acted and introduced a windfall tax. As you say, we don't know if uh, the supermarkets are making more or less or the same in terms of profits. You don't know that. The government doesn't seem to know that. As you said, Simon Coveney said he wants to know what the situation is in terms of profits. And last night, Leo Vratker was on uh, television uh, saying uh, on Virgin Media uh, that, uh, well, he didn't say that he would rule out a windfall tax on supermarkets or grocery retailers. Is that something you'd favour? Yes, look, it's something obviously we would have to look at. But I think, first of all, before we go there, it's about the transparency. Oh, I keep going back to the transparency piece. It's very mm. important. And you're right about the price. Actually, the price of energy, I looked at it in the 20-year period as well. Like, the price of energy has gone up, I think, somewhere in the region, 350% over the last 20 years. So, so that's, And we're dealing, yeah. obviously, that's a huge cost for us as primary producers as well. Um, look, I don't know the windfall tax, how that would work. Uh, but what we do need is, and to go back on what Minister Coveney said yesterday, he wants to see transparency here now as well. So the government have been saying this for quite a while. We've been, we've made numerous presentations to the Giant Optics Committee on this. And you know, the sooner now the government would move on and get this piece of legislation in place. And put, But the important thing here, by setting up this office, Michael, if, the, if that person hasn't got those powers to see where the margin is at, well, then we, we will have failed in this process. OK. Uh, is, is there any possibility that the prices we're being asked to pay in supermarkets are fair? Um, well, all I know is that the, the, the price that the farmer is obtaining, you know, is is... is just adequate to, to keep the farmer in business and you know, any business needs to be making a decent margin to continue and you know, if, you take, if you take the liquid milk for, for argument's sake, like there's a specialised group, group of farmers that produce liquid milk and they have an option, like they could sell their milk for manufacturing and, and obtain close enough the same price, but if you're producing milk to go on a retailer shelf, you have to milk your cows 52 weeks of the year, you milk your cows Christmas Day. So you know, those farmers have to get a higher margin. It's very expensive, obviously, during the winter time because they have to put expensive feed into their cows to produce that milk as well. So, look, uh, I would say, if anything, farmers need to be receiving more. And uh, on the other hand, look, we have to find a balance here. We understand as well that... Uh, the consumer is dealing with um, food inflation currently and if anyone is going to give more here, if the retailer wants to drop the price of food, well then it has to come from their margin. Okay, one comment I read while you're here, I think it'll probably uh, get under your skin or maybe that's uh, the intention of it from a, a listener who says, I don't see any poor farmers, only ones with new Jeeps and you hear uh, all this whinging on the radio every day, they have subsidies for everything and grants for everything else. Look, um, look we, we will hear this, but at the same time, as I said uh, earlier in the programme, 
farmers are changing. Uh, farmers have accepted that they are reducing emissions. And I'd like for farmers to agree and uh, to say that they will reduce their emissions by 25%. Huge challenge, huge cost around all of that. And look, if it is that lucrative, then why have we only 100 uh, horticulture farmers left in the country? The, the poultry sector under enormous pressure last year, the pig sector we lost eight to ten percent of that sector last year and as i said we're losing 800 farmers right across the eu on a daily basis and the average age of farmers mm. is 58 years of age and my job is trying to make farming about the place because well, what we need to do here now michael is ensure we encourage younger farmers into the business as well to maintain the sector going forward so look uh, i wouldn't accept that comment like there's huge challenges around farmer like farming like every other sector but we want to continue continue to produce food in, in, in this country. Okay, well, thanks for responding to it and thanks uh, indeed uh, for joining us on the programme this morning. Well, thank, thank you. you That's uh, Tim Cullinan, who's uh, the president of the IFA, the Irish Farmers Association. Deirdre in touch with us uh, as well today and saying everything has gone through the roof. It's so expensive. Something needs to be done urgently. The government should intervene. Thank you if you've been in touch or if not and you want to make comment on the programme today, as always, we'd love to hear from you our telephone number 0419832000 text or whatsapp 0861800658 email michael at lmfm.ie Michael Reed on LMFM. Well, we've had a housing crisis running for more than a decade in uh, this country. At this stage, no cohort is immune. And more recently, more people over the age of 60 are getting caught up in this crisis. We have an ageing population. Uh, the number of people aged 65 and over is going to double. Uh, over the coming decade or so. Uh, We at the moment have about four people of working age in Ireland uh, for everybody of pension age. And in the coming decades, that ratio will have uh, to two to one. And so that has implications for pension provision, for uh, the cost of health care, cost of home care, uh, and so on. And that's why we need to plan and prepare for the future. And so as well as seeking to address the immediate needs, and of course there are many acute immediate needs, uh, we do also need to make financial provision to meet those age-related costs that we know are coming your way. Um, It is an undeniable fact that um, those who are in a position to buy their first home now are doing so at an older age than they were before. Uh, And there are more pensioners who are now renting uh, than were in the past. And we understand the the added uh, difficulty and concern and anxiety that the insecurity of being a tenant uh, can sometimes bring is even greater for those uh, who are of pension age. Uh, I think that is an understandable fact. And that is why the government has made, uh, will continue to and will step this up, made very significant investment in uh, the delivery of age-friendly housing uh, through our local authorities, uh, through the approved housing bodies. Alone is uh, the charity that helps people age in their own home. That was Michael McGrath, the minister was speaking in uh, the Dáil yesterday on foot of uh, the launch of a report from Alone and from Threshold, which is looking at uh, the situation that older people renting in this country are in. Let's speak uh, to the Chief Executive of Alone, Sean Moynihan, and uh, a very good morning to you, uh, and thank you indeed uh, for joining us on uh, the programme uh, this morning. Some high-profile cases in recent days uh, that have come to the attention of all of us, uh, which indicate that we have people who are not just renting Uh, in their twilight years, if you like, but also face the prospect of becoming homeless. Absolutely. As you say, we launched a report on this, but I suppose for us, 
this is a campaign that's been ongoing for a decade. People buy for, for you know, everybody buys and wants security. But obviously in old age, if you're in the private renters, obviously that it is not a suitable model without security for older people. Because when people go to maybe stop working, we all know that people go down onto a third of their income. If you're bereaved, how do you pay the how do you pay the rent when you retire? If you get bereaved or a family move away. <clears throat> so the reality of it is is we have relied on the private rent sector, but it doesn't work when you get older. Mm. Are you able to answer any of those questions? Because I know for sure I'm not. I mean, if you're paying €2,000, and it's not uncommon in this country yeah. for people to be paying €2,000 in rent on a monthly basis, how do you do that in a pension? And I think the reality is, is what, what we've been looking for for a long time is, is, is that ultimately is, is what we want I suppose we want everybody to have a house of all age groups, right? This isn't about splitting age groups. But the reality of it is, is if we're developing social housing, local authority housing or approved housing body, what we want is, is that the action plans reflect smaller family sizes and reflect that we've an aging population. So if you imagine older people are 18% of the population and rising, mm. that ultimately is, is the percentage of housing built for older people reflects that 18%, where in some local authorities, and Loud has always been a leader in age-friendly housing and in other things to do with age-friendly, in fairness, but the reality is, is in some local authority plans for the next four years, the plan to, for housing for older people is as low as 1%. Right. The research in your report shows that 17% of renters are 45 years of age or older, uh, and that's about 67,000 households. 16,000 of those are over the age of 60. Absolutely. So, if you imagine for those, for us at the moment, 2,000 people across the whole country, 2,000 people a quarter come to us around housing issues, right? And, right, one a day is facing homelessness, right? There are general other housing issues as well. But they represent, unfortunately, even at those high numbers for us and in homeless services, and the only age group that's rising on the social housing list is over 60s for the last six years. Mm. The reality is behind that is people in their 50s, four times the number of people who, who are renting in their 50s as in their 60s. So how are they going to pay the rent when they get retired? or if they get ill, or if they get bereaved. These are the natural journeys of life. They happen to all of us at some stage. And how are you going to pay the rent? Hat payments, you know, housing assistance. Are we going to put a whole generation onto housing assistance payments at a level that they probably won't be able to stay in the communities they're currently in? Okay, well, that's, I suppose, where I was going next. I was going to ask you what happens, uh, because I'm sure, as you say, people in their 50s in particular or early 60s, are very concerned about their future. What happens now uh, if you're to retire? Uh, I suppose in this part of the world, the average rent is about 1500 uh, If you're paying if you're paying that rent now and you're working, but you don't have savings and you're going to retire next year, let's say, uh, will uh, you get 1500 through HAP payments? Well, you see, that, that's the thing. It's a negotiation. It depends on the, on the local authority. But I, I think, I think it's, it, 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 it's another question as well. Yeah, are we going to, how, how do you think people who've worked all their lives, right? And remember, when we're at full employment, 97% of people are working. People in general want to work. If you've worked all your life and then you have to go into local authority and start, start looking for housing and homeless payments. Mm. 
I think we need to be looking at, I don't think we want to condemn the generation from literally Turkey upwards now to look forward to living on, on housing assistance payments, which, by the way, will be actually cost more than the actual pensions are going to cost. So mm. for us, the, the first recommendation to allocate a percentage of social housing to older people to match the aging population is actually 1968. And he- lo- um, <clears throat> social housing, local authority approved housing bodies, you know, when they were set up originally, they predominantly focused on older people, homeless people and disabilities, because ultimately they're the people who generally needed so- a little bit more support from time to time. And on top of that, really need the, the safety and secu- security. Right. Okay, uh, I'm not sure uh, what that means in the context of the scale of uh, the problem today, uh, because we're looking at a a huge housing crisis and so many people renting. Uh, And then the next question is, what happens if you get uh, evicted? That wouldn't have been such a problem five years ago, uh, even in comparison today. Uh, And the reason for that is because there's nowhere to go. And people are facing the prospect of having to go into emergency shelter. You were suggesting yesterday that there should be emergency homeless hubs specifically for older people. No, I'm not suggesting that at all. But I suppose what I'm saying is, is we've become normalised to family hubs and nobody ever wanted them. I worked in homeless services a long time ago and there's no such thing as family hubs. But I don't think anybody, and I think there are very genuine people in local authorities and government and everything else is, but we have, we end up sleepwalking into things because we don't plan and we don't take action. And if we don't take action, the next conversation we'll be talking about is homeless hubs for older people, which once they go into the system, we will never get out of the system. We don't want that. We don't want that for older people. And I actually genuinely believe the community doesn't want it for older people because these are our friends, our mm. neighbours and our relatives. OK, well, we didn't hear Michael McGrath say there uh, when the minister was speaking in uh, the Dáil yesterday was that your report yesterday was launched by the Minister for Housing, Dara O'Brien, and the fact that he was launching your report was an indication of how serious he and the government takes this. Uh, is that correct? Well, I suppose, again, and we believe it in everybody's bona fides, the reality of it is, is what we need from these things, you know, uh, we feel it on the ground, threshold feel it on ground, and ultimately is is what we produce these reports for, you know, raise money for research, and then this story, this report tells the story of real people and their lived experience and the stress, the effect on their health, their well-being, uh, as well as the financial implications. And what we're trying to do is really influence policy. You know, we've been at this ten years, and ourselves and threshold won't be going away because we won't let the older people who come through our doors down. And as I said to you, 2,000 a quarter are coming to us with housing issues. Okay, we leave there for the moment, Sean. Thank you very much for joining us on the programme today. Sean Moynihan is uh, the CEO of uh, the charity Alone. Michael Reed on LMFM. Yeah, thanks to the listener texting saying, my blood is boiling here listening to that comment uh, from a listener saying, farmers have big jeeps and grants. Such ignorance. I'm married to a farmer and we haven't got a, a big jeep. We're on our knees paying back bills. I'd love to bring them here for a week and let them ignorant people see the hardship that we're living with. Well, thank you for your text to the programme uh, today and of course that uh, was responded to by Tim Cullinan who's telling us that despite the increase in grocery inflation, farmers are earning less. 
But those increases are massive. Uh, as we reported at the beginning of uh, the programme, the latest figures from the CSO show general inflation is at 7.2%. This is uh, the latest figures uh, up to the end of April. Uh, but grocery inflation continues to soar at 13.1%, almost double uh, the general rate of inflation. Why is that the case? Are the farmers making the money? Are the shops ripping us off? Uh, what is uh, the reason behind all of this? Is it unavoidable or is it just the way it is? Well, you may think it's expensive to go shopping, but we'll speak to a man now uh, who can look at, at this uh, from every direction. I think it's probably true to say. If you think uh, that figure of 13.1% is bad, by the way, that's over a year. That's uh, comparing prices in April this year to April last year. Uh, but how about uh, the cost of groceries going up by 110% overnight? Uh, that was uh, the situation uh, with uh, tomatoes going from €12 Euro to €25 Euro for a 5 kilo box of tomatoes for Andrew Reiter. Andrew is a farmer based in Ashburn. He runs the New Barn Farm, a 33 acre farm that incorporates the New Barn Farm Shop and the Donkey Shed Restaurant, which I'm sure many people are familiar with. And a very good morning to you, Andrew, and thank you indeed for joining us on the programme this morning. Uh, What do you believe is driving up prices? Uh, Good morning, Michael. Um, Well, the simple thing, as you've uh, quoted there, was that the uh, jump of tomatoes and peppers, which I think a lot of people remember kind of started back in February. And what was the massive drive up for that originally was the um, simple fact that when those peppers were um, put into the glasshouses back around November, December, um, they were uh, paying an absolute fortune for gas. The price of gas had gone up through the roof at that stage. They were, we were told that this war in Ukraine had, you know, caused cost the price to go up. And those um, peppers, to grow them up into plants over winter in Holland and in Ireland, then they need they basically needed to be heated constantly, and that was the first the start of the drive up for it. So nice. when those peppers were ready to go into market, um, the growers uh, demanded a high price. Right, because you are a retailer, but you're a farmer, uh, and you sell three types of produce, if I can put it that way. You sell your own produce, you uh, buy produce from other farmers, uh, and of course you import produce. Yes. So yeah, I'm kind of at a, like, I'm at a unique angle for it, nearly, because I am a grower myself, and I work with farmers from the local area, and as you said as well, I'll import um, directly on off-season and kind of, you know, our melons or grapes or exotic fruits. I'll bring them in from Holland then myself. And basically, when you get into kind of February and March, there's no, um, and sorry, January as well, there is no Irish season really for the likes of tomatoes and peppers. Um, So you are at the will of the Dutch wholesaler. So the price they set is the price that you have to mark all your prices by. And you've no control over that. I I take it you've been getting it in the neck from customers on occasion because I I read your letter in the Irish Times and you say that in this country we must must begin to educate people about the realities of food production and when it comes to importing from the continent you've no control over the price. No, I have absolutely no control over the price. I'm at the I'm at the mercy of the uh, price set by the uh, growers on the continent or the auctions um, in Holland that set the prices that they have and um, that will set the prices going forward. And we do have our like we we have our customers come in and we always 
because we are a, a local business, we have a very good relationship with our customers. And then when they see the price of something going up, they'll always question it. And we will explain to them that, yes, it's gone up, but this is the reason it has gone up and this is what we have to deal with now. Um, and like, and our, a lot of, and our customers are always very understanding mm. with that. Like, mm. and I will, I'll sit down once or twice a week, and I'll go over what I'm paying for everything. I'll go over my prices and everything, and I'll set them accordingly. I, I, I have to keep my margins at my margins to, you know, pay the people we have working here for us, and you know, make sure I can get a bit of a wage out of it as well. Um, so, like, you know, it mm. does mean that the prices fluctuate quite regularly, but I'm always trying to make sure that the um, that I'm still giving as good uh, as best I can to the customer. And it's not just imported produce, is it, Andrew? Uh, because I'm sure like all of us, uh, you're enjoying this beautiful Friday morning. It, it, it's a, a gorgeous day because it, it's finally stopped raining. Uh, what about the elements? Because you're at the mercy of the elements when it comes to your own produce. Well, yeah, we are um, so basically now very, very simple. Myself and a lot of other like growers in the country we're very much behind on our planting at the moment. Um, we should be starting, like, you know, Irish broccoli should be starting now towards the end of this month. Um, the rain has kind of, you know, hampered that because people are very late getting out into the fields. People are very late getting the season. was very late getting started. So there is going to be delay this year on Irish produce coming onto the market. Now, we are on Irish tomatoes, Irish cucumbers. There's Irish salads started and all that kind of stuff. But for the actual field vegetables, that's taking a long. That that's going to take longer than it usually does this year because the weather, as everyone's seen, the weather's been so mm. bad at the moment. Yeah. yeah okay. And it, it's costly uh, to plant. Uh, there's a lot to it, uh, of course, uh, when you think about everything involved. Uh, you had uh, planned to be planting uh, some months ago, and you were buying the produce, whether it was the fertilizer, fuel, weed, or pest controls, uh, and all of the things that are associated with planting when the prices were at their peak. Yes, that's exactly it, yes. We, 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 we bought, like, fertilizer has come down in price in the last four weeks or so, but when we bought our fertilizer, it was at the higher cost, because, as you just said there, we have our planting plans in order, we, have, we, have to, we, we, we buy everything ahead, and um, so we're not, so a lot of farmers and ourselves included, we're not feeling that um, relief, re, uh, relief in prices yet. Right. As a farmer and as a, a retailer, uh, what do you make of uh, the current debate? Uh, I mean, is it possible to find a solution or is it just a, a fact of life that we have to pay more for groceries? It, see, I, I think like that's kind of, I think, well, sorry, it's a very hard um, question to answer because I think there's, um, it's it's much more, there's much more nuance to it um, that we do have to pay more for groceries, but like that's something um, just kind of, they don't make sense. But I feel that it's more so, like I, I think the consumer needs to understand more where their groceries are coming from. And they need to be able to, like, the guy, every, people need to be able to understand, like, what's in season, when it's not in season. Like, at the moment, we are, like, a lot of our field veg at the moment, our carrots, our broccoli are coming in from Spain. And Spain are having the opposite problem we are, that it's, like, it's mm. they're in the midst of a massive drought. So their production has gone up, but their yields are low because they're irrigating, stuff is getting burnt in the fields. And that's driving the price up for us. So, I really think, like a consumer, if the if there's consumers are able to know better what is happening, the, the larger picture around growing, and that will 
you know, that can educate the consumer to know what to buy, when to buy, how to buy, rather than just kind of expecting something like, I'd say, like um, strawberries or something like that to be available all year round. Mm, yeah, no, well, they are, but uh, you don't grow them in this country, and I think that's your point, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Like, they're not being grown in this country all year round. Yeah, okay. Uh, yeah. All right, Andrew. Very interesting to talk to you. Good to talk to you. And thank you indeed for joining us on the programme this morning. Much appreciated. Uh, that's Andrew Reiter, who is a farmer based in Ashburn uh, and runs the New Barn Farm, which is a 33 acre farm. And it incorporates, as I'm sure many people know, the New Barn Farm Shop and the wonderful Donkey Shed Restaurant. Michael, Michael Reed on, on LMFM. Well, there's a, a real crisis in Cork uh, this week for residents and uh, the family of residents at uh, the Bowmount Residential Care Nursing Home because uh, they've been told that due to extreme financial pressure that uh, they're pulling out of uh, the Fair Deal scheme. Uh, the provider is Care Choice Group and they say that the home will only be available to residents who pay fees privately. Uh, another group, the Windmill Healthcare Group, has uh, told uh, the Irish Times that uh, the Fair Deal scheme is broken and that nursing homes are in serious trouble and that this group that runs six different nursing homes say that uh, the scheme means that providers are struggling to survive uh, and there's a bleak future ahead for residents who are in nursing homes under Fair Deal. Let's speak uh, to Tyg Daly, who's uh, the Chief Executive of Nursing Homes Ireland. A very good morning to you, Tyg, uh, and thank you indeed uh, for joining us on the programme today. That's a, a dreadful situation, isn't it, for residents and their families to find themselves in. Is it avoidable? Well, I mean, you're right, it is hugely, hugely concerning, but it's not a surprising uh, development. And, and as you say, our first thoughts are out with the, uh, with the residents and, and, and indeed the staff in, in that particular nursing home. Of course it's avoidable. I mean, in this case, and, you know, this is something which is replicated across the country, unfortunately. But in this case, I know from speaking to the member, is that they have tried over a, um, a lengthy period to come to an agreement with the National Treatment Purchase Fund in terms of the, the fee rate under the fair deal. And they have been unable to, unable to agree a rate uh, despite, despite every effort being made. So uh, ultimately what needs to happen here is that, uh, you know, the, I spoke on your programme before uh, around the issues with uh, the funding under fair deal. Uh, and until such time as that kind of underlying issue is addressed, we are going to see uh, further such uh, developments. I mean, 23 nursing homes have closed in, in the last 16 months. Mm. Um, so the time for action is long over, unfortunately. Um, and, and what we'd be appealing for is to work collaboratively with government, with the HSE, with the Treatment Purchase Fund, uh, to fix this now pretty quickly so that we can inject, I suppose, what I would call the badly needed confidence back into the sector to stabilise the sector in, in, the, in, the, in the immediate term because how, how, for, a lot of families, for a lot of families they would be concerned, absolutely. Okay, uh, explain to us how you fix it, if you can, Tyke, uh, because uh, people uh, will uh, agree, yeah. I think, that nursing homes, private nursing homes, are, are very, very expensive uh, and that uh, residents end up with a significant charge on their estate. So yes. they, they pay anyway, don't they? Of course, yeah. I mean, look, it's important to point out, yeah. I mean, the Fair Deal scheme is a co-payment scheme, uh, and it's a co-payment scheme for all nursing homes, public, uh, private, and voluntary. But, but, but as an example, in, in Louth and Mead, so in Louth, there are four public nursing homes, and there are nine uh, private nursing homes. And in the, in the public sector, the average weekly fee is €1,936 per week, whereas in the private sector, uh, the fee is 1083 
So that differential is, is you know, 70, uh, almost 80% of a differential. Right. So in, in, in effect, you know, when people, and the article you referred to this morning talks about the fair deal not being fair. And that's ultimately what we're saying, is that until, until such time as there is a rebalancing and an acceptance of the true cost of care, because the state knows what it costs to care for an older person in a residential care facility, because they're willing to pay almost €2,000 per week in their own facilities. So our members are providing value for money to the state, uh, providing a high standard of care, as evidenced by the recent uh, National Patient Experience Survey. But under the current funding model, as I say, we've seen lots of closures. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a -a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Save big money when you start your next project today at Menards. Check out our great selection of garage and utility lighting options. In stock, ready to take home today. We carry everything to help you illuminate whatever project you're working on. Shop garage and utility lighting products in store at your nearest Menards. You can also view all of our entire selection of lighting options today on Menards.com. Save big money at Menards. Now we've seen a nursing home leave the fair deal scheme and more will follow. And that is, you know, unavoidable. And we should do everything, all of us, and we'll take our responsibility seriously as an organisation and as a sector. But we need government and we need uh, the, the, the funding under, under the fair deal uh, to come to the table uh, collaboratively to mm. address the underlying funding issue. What's the justification for the disparity? Why are private homes paid less than public homes? Well, I mean, historically, you would have had a minister and others talking about the, 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 the care provided and the dependency level. Now, they haven't, um, you know, spoken of that recently because that has been blown out of the water on a number of occasions. But ultimately, uh, what, what the recent comment by the HSE, and they can speak for themselves, is that they say that they have had to um, invest in respect of the physical environment standards and they've lost beds. And the other big issue is the issue of staffing. Uh, is that they're in a position to remunerate staff appropriately. And that is the, the, the significant issue from our perspective. The, the, the suppression of the fee uh, under the fair deal means that the private sector cannot compete when it comes to staff. And we know that staff right across the health service, but particularly in the nursing home sector, worked so, so hard in COVID and continue to work hard in a, in a very compassionate and caring environment, but they're not remunerated appropriately. So that's the nub of the issue. So, really. so pub, pu- public homes pay staff more uh, than private homes, uh, and yeah. that's why they're paid more per patient than Correct. private homes. That, that, that's, that's it in a nutshell. So what we want to do is ensure 
And look, we're not we're not naive, you know, this isn't going to be happening overnight. But mm. even if we had government coming to say, OK, over the next two, three years, we're going to, uh, over a period of time, uh, on a phased basis, increase the funding to the private sector, mm. uh, then our, our members, it would stabilise the sector, as I say, and it would also allow the, 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 the Nursing Homes Ireland members to then pass that, as it were, on to staff, so okay. that staff are remunerated appropriately for the outstanding uh, care that they, that they provide on an ongoing basis. But uh, it's very hard to understand because public homes operate on a not-for-profit basis and private homes operate on a profit basis, don't they? Correct. Correct. And I mean, the other element that's not included in those figures, uh, Michael, uh, is capital, for example. So this is current costs in in the case of the public ones, um, uh, but capital is is out of a separate budget. Uh, Furthermore, the public homes don't pay, for example, uh, commercial rates. Um, so there are a number of other headings as well that our members uh, have to pay and, and uh, will pay, yeah. obviously. But they're not included in those figures. Um, so the, like, there's a huge, huge discrimination here. And it's just, I mean, your listeners, Nursing Homes Ireland, saying that. But the CNAG has said it, the Public Accounts Committee, the Ombudsman, uh, Deloitte. Um, there's been a value for money review. There's mm. a number of, of, of is there, government... Is there, wastage in the, is there wastage in the public sector? Well, I mean, it, it, you know, it's not for me to, to criticise, I suppose. Ultimately, uh, there are probably better efficiencies, I would say, in, in, in the private sector. Uh, but that efficiency is being abused in many respects. Um, and th- what we're seeing now is the, the impact of, of the continued suppression, as I put it, of, of the rates. Um, so that, that's ultimately the issue. And as I say, until such time uh, as there is an acceptance of that and until such time as government acts on, on its own reports, there's a myriad of government mm. reports that have highlighted this issue, issue. Fair Deal came in in 2009. There's been four reviews of Fair Deal. And they're all saying the very same thing, is that the pricing model is not fit for purpose. Um, the CNAG was scathing in, in terms of the, the model that is being used currently. And now we're seeing the, the fruits uh, of the inaction, unfortunately. But it's not too late. I mean, you know, we have an ageing population, you've heard me say before, we should be celebrating that fact. And we should be, uh, you know, putting the resources in play for uh, home care and nursing home care, because we need to keep people out of the acute hospital system. And the nursing home sector has a crucial and absolutely vital role to play in that regard. Right. I I, I find it very hard to understand, Tyke, uh, but Mm. uh, I can't understand how Patrick Murphy is supposed to understand it. Uh, Patrick Murphy uh, is one of uh, the residents of uh, that nursing home in Cork. Yes. And so the Irish Times reports about Patrick today. He's a former railway man. He worked hard all of his life. He, he's 99 years of age uh, and he's been in that home since 2019. And yes. now he's being told he has to move out. This is a 99-year-old man. How, how is he supposed to understand that? Absolutely. And like we've had in the last, uh, I mentioned that there's 23 homes that closed in the last 16 months. Over 600 residents have lost what is their home. And it, it does concern me that there has been no outcry about that. Um, you know, the public um, haven't rallied around uh, that particular issue. So that's why it's important that we all focus on this issue now. I mean, we see, for example, every day in the housing crisis, um, you know, the results of what I would term inaction. Uh, there's still time to act in our sector. And we'd, we'd again plea with, with government, with Department of Public Expenditure and Reform, with the Department of Health to, uh, to work with, with the sector 
um, to to stabilise current provision and also to ensure that we can have the provision into the future. So, you know, for, for residents and families, uh, this is hugely, hugely concerning. And when you see, as you said, uh, that gentleman, 99 years of age, and his family, how concerned they are. Mm. Um, you know, we can't let that this become, uh, as it said in the Irish Times, a tidal wave. We've got to stop this now. And the only way we're going to stop this is by, by, as I say, injecting the confidence into the sector and saying to the sector, uh, you know, yes, we understand, we hear you, and we're going to do something about it. What we're hearing at the moment is is that we're getting um, um, silence from uh, the policymakers, unfortunately, and that's not good enough. Is this uh, another sign of inflation, the increase in the cost of living? Uh, because this wasn't a problem, was it, uh, last year or the year before? Uh, I mean, we weren't expecting a tidal wave of nursing homes to pull out a fair deal. No, I mean, you're right. I mean, I suppose, you know, over the last number of years, the issue of the, the discrimination in funding is long-standing, unfortunately. I mean, the Ombudsman's report in 2010, you know, 13 years ago, uh, mentioned this very point. Uh, then we had COVID, and for many homes, they would have exhausted, for I would say, their reserves. And then, obviously, we're into a, a period of hyperinflation. Um, so it's a confluence of, of all of those um, elements, ultimately. And as I said earlier, you know, the, the complexity of care, the age profile, uh, the care requirements of those now requiring nursing home care is such that the costs uh, have risen inexorably. And uh, the, the funding to support the, those costs is not forthcoming. And the inevitability there is that nursing homes are either forced to close uh, which is which is the worst case scenario, or in this case in in Beaumont, uh, forced to withdraw from the fair deal scheme, and that has huge implications for older people, for the nursing home sector, and as I say, for the wider health service. Okay, uh, uh, you said uh, I think that uh, there's been silence uh, in, in response uh, to your concerns uh, about this. Uh, yes. uh, you have brought those concerns undoubtedly to government. Oh, absolutely. I mean, look, we wish to work collaboratively with all stakeholders. You know, we we. We realise that you know there's not you know the public purse isn't isn't unlimited, um, you know. But by the same token, there has to be a realisation here that unless uh, we act, there is going to be further closure. So we met the last time we met Minister uh, was on the 31st of uh, January of this year, um, and we're in regular engagement. I can assure you with with officials in the department and indeed with politicians across the spectrum uh, to try and address this, and and we'll continue to do so. Okay, we'll leave it there for now. But thank you indeed for joining us on the programme this morning. Much appreciated. That's uh, Ty Daly, who's uh, the Chief Executive of Nursing Homes Ireland. Michael Reed on LMFM. Yeah, there was a remarkable story in the Irish Times yesterday. Colm Keener was reporting on a High Court case, and you won't believe this. It's a case to do with child sexual abuse. There was one perpetrator of child sexual abuse. The person in question pleaded guilty to abusing a child in the criminal courts. But The remarkable part of this story is that the High Court has been asked to enter a judgment in default against 103 members of the Christian Brothers. One perpetrator, but 103 Christian Brothers are to be found guilty. That's the request to the High Court. Uh, Let's uh, speak uh, to Damien O'Farrell once uh, again. We've spoken with Damien before and you may remember that Damien was on prime time himself, uh, a victim of child sexual abuse at the hands of Christian Brothers and uh, somebody who has been representing victims of child sexual abuse at the hands of the Christian Brothers for some time. 
explain this to me because on, on the face of it, it makes no sense at all, Damien. Well, thank you. I suppose in, in 2017, there was a, a Supreme Court ruling that ruled that religious orders were, were unincorporated bodies. They weren't, co- they weren't incorporated bodies, they were unincorporated. So if you wanted to sue a religious order or a member of a religious order, you had to sue all the members who were, who were members of the order at the time of the abuse. And that's what's happening here. And the, so the brothers then, uh, Edmund Garvey was the leader at the time. He presided over this introduction of this litigation strategy. So so 102 people did nothing to this boy. That's right. But they're being charged with child sexual abuse. At least that's the, yes, the High Court the, is being yeah, asked to charge them. Because the Christian Brother Order have decided not to put put forward a nomination to take the case. So the victim then okay. is left with, he ha- he has to serve the, summonses the vic- over a hun- on over 100 brothers, okay. 130 brothers. He has to go to court to find out all their addresses. First of all, the right. brothers, he has to go to court to find out their addresses. They, they weren't given to him by, mm. the, by the brothers. He had to go to court for that. He, he's, he's been in court several times uh, to find addresses. They're moving, they've moved around. Some of them, as I mentioned mm. in that article, 14 of them are deceased now. So he has to, um, he has to contact their, the executors of their estate, the probates, you know, mm. th- he has to do that, the victim. Um, it's a shocking uh, situation. It's 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 one person is guilty. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Uh, and and, yeah. and that's a court judgment. Yeah. Uh, in fact, he admitted it. Yeah. Uh, but over 100 Christian brothers who are charged of nothing are being drawn into this. Yeah. And that person who who's pleaded guilty in this particular case, he's going to be sentenced on the 24th of May. Right. And the victim then in this case, it was horrific abuse. This this victim um, is going to have a gift, a, vict- a victim impact statement on the 24th of May. And on the same day on the 24th of May, he's also going to be down in the civil courts in a different building um, with this case, with his, with, his, with his civil litigation. As I said, all at the choice of the of the Christian Brother Order who cho- who've chosen this legal strategy when they, when they don't have well, to why, do that. Why have they chosen it? I mean, they're implicating innocent people, are they not? Well, incidentally, this particular case, the judge actually summoned the now leader of the order in to see him um, a few weeks ago. And he said, he said, I want you to come in or I want your legal representative to come in front of me. He adjourned the case and a few weeks later, the legal representative of the order's leader came in and uh, the judge asked him, are you continuing on with this strategy, serving summonses on all these old people in nursing homes or the average age of a Christian brother yeah. is 80? Are you con- is your leader con- continuing on with that strategy? Mm. And the barrister said that they were his instructions to continue. Right. That's brother David Gibson. Yeah. yeah. And it, it's a, a legal strategy. Uh, it, it, there's, uh, it's totally permissible legally. It's lawful, yeah. By um, the letter of the law, if you like. Lawful and awful, a victim mentioned okay. last night uh, at our meeting. Lawful and awful. Lawfully sound, uh, morally very, very questionable because innocent people are being drawn in, into this. But that's the approach that Brother David Gibson, who is now head of the Christian Brothers, mm. is, is taken. And he has inherited this strategy or this obstacle to thwart victims, uh, as you would contend, yeah. from Brother Edmund Garvey, who you mentioned a, a moment ago, right, and you were yeah. here with us before talking about Brother yeah. Edmund Garvey. Yeah, but I mean, Brother Gibson could choose, also choose, he's now the leader, he now has responsibility, he could choose not to use this legal strategy. He could he could choose to instruct his lawyers in a different way, which is all the other religious orders and all the archbishops and the diocese in the country, they don't use this strategy. Mm. As far as I know, only the Christian brothers use this strategy. But as I said, it was in, it was instigated um, it was chosen by brother Edmund Garvey in t- 2017 and he was the leader of the Christian Brother Order at the time. He presided over the introduction of it. Mm. 
what's the idea of it? Is it to... Well, uh, I think, as I said on the, the primetime programme, yeah. um, with this particular order, I believe uh, it's cold, hard business. It's to stop paying it's out stop money, paying, is it? Yeah. yeah, the victim in this case... I mean, case, to put it in very simple terms. Uh, I mean, this is somebody who's being um, convicted in a criminal court of mm. one of the most heinous crimes yeah. possible yeah. to carry out on another person, mm-hmm. uh, particularly in the case of sexually abusing a, a child. A, a, an innocent child who mm-hmm. loses their childhood, as yeah. I think you explained yeah. to us yeah. before. This, this 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 person was was convicted of um, sexual abuse and also torture. He whipped the um, the victim in a cell in a, in a dungeon in a school in Dublin. It was called by the pupils the dungeon, and the and the victim still has scars from the whip marks on his back, which I have seen. And um, this is shocking way way and to I, treat and I, and um, to treat that. a victim. This was back in the early nineteen eighties. Right. Um, uh, and this uh, uh, went on for five years with this victim. Through five all, years? All through his secondary school, yes. Right. Uh, and um, when did he first take a complaint? I, I believe he went to the guards um, maybe around 2017. Right. And the man was convicted. Six years ago? Yeah. And the man used to be on the, on the Christian Buller leadership team and he was convicted um, only this year, a number mm. of weeks ago. And he's, he's sentenced on the 24th of May. And he's been in and out of the courts for six years. Yeah, he's no, he's, he's been serving summonses for, for four years, as far as I know. Okay, but through the legal system. He went to the guards in 2017, yeah, yeah. possibly the civil case in yeah. 2009. Yeah, but he, yeah. he's, he's been oh, serving summonses yeah. for four years yeah. and he hasn't finished serving the summonses. And some of the summonses, are he's serving them abroad. He yeah. has to get summon services in foreign countries, in foreign jurisdictions. Like even the north of Ireland, mm. there's members of the Brothers Order up in Northern Ireland. It's a different system mm. for serving a summons up there than it is down here. Uh, and there's the no... Okay in France. Uh, uh, and, and and there is no compensation that would help somebody uh, get over this. Uh, but what the compensation or the redress is, uh, I think, uh, from a legal perspective, is a recognition of an injustice. And that when you force an order to pay over money, uh, it is that order recognising uh, that they were negligent, uh, that they didn't act in a, a way that could have protected the children yeah. that were in their care. Yeah. Uh, and it also gives the victim some acknowledgement yeah. so that they can move on. Yeah, it's uh, and, and it is very important and it is a lot more to do with pounds, shillings uh, and pence. Yeah. But that justice, which that person mm. deserves, mm-hmm. is being thwarted mm-hmm. intentionally according to the former Supreme Court, uh, the, 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 the judge uh, Frank Clark. Yeah, uh, he said it was a choice. Yeah. And he said justice denied, uh, justice delayed is justice denied. God, I probably uh, am right in thinking that that man uh, uh, who was abused so horribly and whipped so horribly in the dungeon Mm. for five years, uh, who now has to take 103 brothers or whatever it is, Mm. take legal action against them, uh, is listening to us uh, this morning because he was in County Loud last night. He was, yeah. He's actually originally his family, his mother's family side of his family, are from, I believe are from Dulic. He's certainly from Loud anyway. And he was there last night. He was speaking at a meeting that we have at Victor's and very emotional. Um, very emotional. He, he spoke about it. Right. That meeting was ahead of a uh, meeting of the local authority of Loud County Council, which is going to take place uh, on Monday. And it's the reason you're with us uh, this morning. Independent Councillor Maeve, yours with us. Uh, and we'll hear a little bit more 
uh, about that man's story and what it means because there are more people like that man and what you were hoping to do maybe you were on Monday at that meeting mm. uh, we'll talk about that after the break Michael, Michael Reed, Reed on LMFM. Damien O'Farrell uh, is uh, with us. Uh, he stays with us uh, during uh, the ad break. Uh, there, we were hearing before the ads uh, that uh, incredible story, uh, and it's one of many similar stories. It's a story, uh, and indeed, as I said, there's many other stories like it uh, that have affected you. You've uh, taken a personal interest in this, Mayor. Yes. Good morning, Michael. Um, I'm fully aware this is a very sensitive and difficult issue for people, but. The survivors reached out to us in October and asked us for support and reading all the emails from all over the country and all over the world, like, we have to be the voice, we have to break the silence. Mm. That's how I feel. I believe people travelled from all across the country, from different yes. parts of the country to that meeting in Laos yeah, last night. Yeah, we had a meeting last night mm-hmm. in the Boyne Valley. The survivors organised a meeting and we were all invited to it. And there was. Uh, and when you say we all, that's the, all the councillors? Yes, all the yep. councillors, sorry, all yep. the Louth councillors yep. yep. invited. Um, they were from Dromore Diocese, they were from Newcastle, they were from Louth, they were from Leash, they were from Belfast, they were from all over the country. Um, I was actually astounded. You know, Dublin yep. as well, um, we won't forget Dublin. Um, just giving us their story and um, the effect it has on them and their families. Okay. It's not just yep. them that are affected by this, it's their families, it's the ripple effect. Yep. Um, one chap from Louth said he wants to be the voice um, for um, a relation of his and he wants Louth to say Louth says no. Mm. Louth doesn't accept um, sexual abuse. Mm. This strategy, this litigation, um, the CBS order, the facts are the CBS, the CB brothers are the only religious order that uses this strategy, this litigation strategy. they are refusing to appoint a nominee to accept cases. They're refusing to give contact details. It's, it's very difficult um, mm. for survivors. It's very traumatic for the survivors. It's very traumatic for their families. And we need to stand up and be counted. Mm. And I... There, there's, there's no prospect of justice without spending years in the courts. Years, Unnecessarily. Years. Yeah, like mm. a, a chap said last night, he's doing this 30 years. I mean, imagine the effect on his whole mm. life of that. Um, and it's up to us as elected reps, in my opinion, in my opinion, mm-hmm. I'm only an independent councillor and now the county councillor, I'm one of 29. In my opinion, it's up to us to be the voice mm. and, and to how, speak how, out. How, how, how would you do that? Well, I submitted um, a motion on the 2nd of April, Michael, to allow the County Council. Um, and on the 6th of April, I was informed um, that the Council had concerns about the wording of my motion. So I resubmitted my motion th- and reworded it. Um, I can call out the, the submission, the mm. motion if mm. you wish. Yeah. Um, and on the 6th of April, I received the email from um, Council Management to say that the, um, the motion would be included um, on the CLAR. So at eight minutes to ten on the morning of the April County meeting, um, the Labour Whip and the Cahirlock approached me and said um, that they were making an amendment to the motion. And I hadn't seen a, a draft of the amendment. I hadn't seen um, a copy of the amendment. Um, I asked to see that. Um, I got that during the meeting. I hadn't a chance to discuss that amendment with the survivors. I hadn't a chance to see if that's what the survivors wanted or needed. Um, so I thought about it the whole way through the meeting and I said, to be fair on the survivors, I need to talk to them first before I let anything um, go through on the CLAR. So I withdrew my motion. Okay. Um, uh, um, after the county meeting, mm. I contacted all the um, survivors again. I think, that it, <clears throat> just to say, I think the Labour Party members would say uh, that uh, your motion would have been all the more robust uh, 
if their amendment had been accepted. Uh, but I'm not sure if that's necessarily true, Michael. Because I think that's what they would say, though. But yeah, yeah, yeah. You, you know, it's just uh, the, their uh, amendment uh, was about contacting the um, government in relation to changing. That was the, on the mm. for, on the April motion. But your point is, you hadn't seen the amendment, or more importantly, hadn't had a chance to, to discuss, discuss it, it with okay. the survivors. Yeah. This is about the survivors. Mm. This yeah. isn't about political parties or me or you mm. or Damien O'Farrell or anybody. This is about mm. the survivors and what they need okay. and what they, they deserve. In in my opinion. So your motion then? uh, So on the 19th um, of April, I submitted a new motion for May's county meeting. And um, I was informed last Thursday night that my motion would be removed, was removed from the May county meeting due to legal advice that the council had sought. So I sought my own and have sought over the course of um, Mm. this, my own legal advice um, and issued a letter to the council last week just to get clarification on what um, what are their concerns? What mm. wording do they feel may be defamatory? I didn't mention any names in okay. my motion. Well, I, I, I've seen your motion. Yeah. Uh, and we have to be very, very careful on the radio. Absolutely. Uh, because uh, we'll be in court and sued for defamation in the blink of an eyelid. Yeah. Uh, I don't see any problem with you reading your motion on the radio if you'd like to do that. Yeah. And, and my legal advice mm. is that there isn't a problem with the wording of my motion. Mm. So I'll, I'll just read it out to you now. Michael. Yeah, sure. Um, that Louth County Council supports all victims of child sexual abuse and condemns the current litigation strategy chosen by the Christian Brother Order, as illustrated on RT Primetime, the 7th of February 2023. Furthermore, that this council writes to the Christian Brother leadership team condemning this litigation strategy and this council calls upon our members in the borough district of Drogheda to rescind the freedom of Drogheda bestowed on the then leader of the Christian Brothers who presided over the order's instigation of this strategy. That was what I submitted um, okay. on the Matt, 19th of you, you, You've read it here. Uh, <laughs> I hope I'm right <laughs> because if the council is right, I'm out of a job uh, because you've just read it, if you know what I mean. Uh, but I, 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 I'm sure that we're not going to be sued by the Christian Brothers. Uh, and, uh, to put that another way, uh, you've read it here uh, and it's legally okay, if I'm right. Uh, but the council says there's a big legal problem at, uh, in reading that at the council because you'd be defaming somebody who or well, what? Well, it could be possibly. possible defamatory. Yeah. Mm. And um, my legal mm. advisor says there's nothing in that that's possibly yeah. defamatory. Okay. Um, we wrote to the council, by the way, and asked them why okay. they had decided, why the officials had taken upon themselves uh, to withdraw your motion. We haven't had a response. OK, well, I just feel as an elected rep, I try to represent all the people of Louth, Michael, um, always have since 2014. We have to break the silence. We have to be the voice. If anybody was at that meeting last night, they would surely um, be aware of the trauma, the ongoing trauma. Mm. This like just because you bring somebody to court doesn't mean to say you come out and you're healed. You're not mm. healed. It how many how many councillors were at the meeting? Um, there was five councillors at the meeting last okay. night, Michael. Um, yeah. And um, was that disappointing, Damien? It was, but I, I, what I was disappointed, I suppose, is that there wasn't maybe a, a representative from each party there, because mm. we we asked that, you know, okay. we, we we asked the whips um, mm. of that. So I thought that that was disappointing. Mm. But look, people, we gave them nine days' notice, and um, we asked responde civil mm. play, you know, and I was. But look, people, more, more people have commitments, and mm. people, I yeah. understand that. Mm. But I think maybe the party should have got together and had one person there from each. I, I think um, we maybe may should may say, say who the because I think credit where credit's due should maybe say who the, who the, who the councils were that were there. 
Well, Councillor Paddy McQuillan, um, independent <coughs> councillor, was there. Councillor Bernie Conlon, independent councillor Midlouth, myself, uh, Councillor Thomas Sharkey, Councillor Paula Butterley, Sinn Féin, mm. uh, Councillor Paula Butterley, Finn Gale was Thank there. You. Okay, so two political parties were represented. Okay, um, but uh, there's um, little relevance to it because your motion will not be voted on, let alone debated. Well, it won't be voted. It's not on the agenda for me, but I'm not letting go of this, Michael. I have to speak for the people of Louth and the people at that meeting last night and I'm taking legal advice and I want my motion on the Clara and I want us to discuss it and I know it's difficult. It's difficult. I know it's difficult for people mm. but we have we have to be the voice for people. Yeah, just just, just to clarify, um, there's two functions of uh, in, in a county council. Mm. There's a thing called an executive function. An executive function is the roads, the staff, the IT systems, paying, all that type of stuff. And there's it's what's called a reserve function. And the reserve function, um, it's in legislation. It's in the, the Local Government Act, the Reform Act 2014. It quite clearly says that the, the chief executive of a, of, a, of, a, of a council, a county manager, has certain executive functions, but they do not lend themselves over to reserve functions. The, the awarding or the retrieving of a, of a civic honour is a reserved function for councillors. And my understanding of the standing orders, you know, mm. is that a motion would go on to the CLAR and the councillors themselves See the the issue that the that the management have about the precedent. There could be a there could be a, a possibility of suing, you know, you know, of defamation. But it's the councillors that they're the members. It's their meeting. The, mm. the, the officials are just guests at the county meeting. Mm. It's a county meeting. The chair, the councillors, you know. So, so okay, but there is an obligation, is there not? I should just well, yeah, mention they, to people as well, Damien, that yeah. you're a councillor yourself. What, yeah. So you have a, a, yeah. a, a much better knowledge of yeah. all of this than I would. Yeah. Uh, but uh, the chair of the meeting is the chief executive, and no, no, not not the, no, the chair of the meeting is. The, uh, is the is the of the county. of the county. Okay. No, the the, the, the CE is, is technically a guest at the county okay. meeting. But is there not a responsibility on uh, the chief executive uh, to ensure that the meetings are held in an appropriate way and that the council isn't open to defamation? Yes. Well, they would say that to the councillors. Mm. It's normally what happens. And as a councillor last night explained, what normally happens is they mm. would the chief executive would advise the councillors, but the motion would still go on to the CLAR mm. and the councillors beside. It's their meeting. It's okay. their statutory meeting just for elected people. So the councillors, is that and right, May, that, the, that, that, that your motion was pulled? By the executive, yeah. not by the councillors. That's my understanding of it, Michael. That's what and I do you told. believe that the executive has acted outside of its remit? Well, I do believe that because... Like we as elect reps are standing orders there, we can put in any motion that's not defamatory. And we have been advised, Michael, I can get very passionate about um, different topics in the council chamber. Um, the other councillors will tell you, as I do call it, the red mist comes down and I get very passionate. And um, we're always warned by the Cahirlock and, and the county, um, the chief executive and um, mm. the management that, listen, you know, you can't do this. This might leak into trouble, and and that's well and good. But like other um, other local authorities have put similar motions, and they have been debated in the chamber, yeah. and they have been passed by the chamber, and they've been supported. Dublin City party. Council have passed a motion to this effect, haven't they? Yeah, twenty times more severe. Um, mm. Than that, than that but, uh, I mean, there is nothing defamatory, uh, mm. as I understand defamation in, in the wording of your motion. I take it that the concern was that during the debate, somebody might say something defamatory. But as your legal advice, which has been sent to the council, states yeah. 
that's the role of the chairperson to make sure that that doesn't happen and to remind the members of their legal obligations. Yeah, and and like, show me the words that are defamatory, show me the wording that they feel is defamatory and um, like, the Cahirlock has um, contacted me all the time Mm. in relation to my motions. None of the, um, uh, no, by email, um, one of the directors has, in Mm. fairness, but nobody has lifted the phone and said, or, or no party has lifted the phone and said we're going to support this motion, you know. Um, mm. Now, uh, um, since my April motion, a, a few people have said that they would support, but they never said that to me at the time. Mm. Um, and this isn't about me. This isn't about political parties. This isn't mm. about Louth County Council. This is about survivors. All right. How do the survivors, or I think you prefer to say victims, Damien, uh, uh, how do the victims feel? They were very, very upset last night. Um and I don't want to be negative about it because the meeting last night was very just very constructive. There was some mm. constructive dialogue from councillors, and we're talking maybe having having a special meeting in the future because that's um, there's more legislation around that, and that's something that can't really be blocked. There's more, there's probably more, le- you know, a special mm. meeting, and we'd only need five councillors to sign a letter to have a special meeting mm. to discuss this of Loud County Council. And mm. I would hope that that's where it's going. But it was very constructive last night. So the councillors present gave some pretty good views and mm. how this could be. I believe that the the, the 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 thought there was tonight if this honour was being given to this person tomorrow, it wouldn't be given. You know? Okay, no, well, let's, let's just back was, up there a bit because yeah. there's two, there's two yeah, strands to May's yeah. motion. One yeah. is uh, the legal strategy that we've been yeah. talking uh, about, mm. which is obstructing, mm. it's obstructing the victims yeah. from yeah. Uh, receiving justice. Uh, and then the second part to your motion is uh, rescinding uh, the freedom of the city honour that was conferred on Brother Edmund Garvey in 1997, I think. Yeah. Um, I, am I right in thinking that there could be support for the first part of your motion objecting to the legal strategy or at least more support for that than there would be for rescinding uh, the freedom of uh, Drogheda to Brother Garvey? I think so, but I'm not sure, Michael, because nobody has approached me to say. Mm-hmm. Now, two councillors said last night that um, they would have um, supported, but nobody had approached me. Um, the thing is, the survivors want... Um, the survivors, after talking to them about the amendment, etc., etc., of my first motion in April, the survivors want the rescindment. The rescindment um, isn't about calling anybody out or upsetting anybody, or it's it's a it's a token for them that we're. One of the survivors last night said, um, "A beacon of light for them, you know, that we're a beacon of light, that we're listening, that we care, that we want to make a difference, um, that." Um, the rescindment is about Loud standing up, as the chap said from Loud, Loud standing up and saying Loud mm. says no. Loud well, says uh, no. I mean, just to be devil's advocate if I can, what difference does it make uh, to rescind this honour? Uh, it was given 26 years ago. It's history, is it not, Damien? Well, it's a message, I suppose. This this person, um, this this honour is continued to be there. It's 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 present day. It's continued to be the person's continued to be honoured. And this person, as I said, presided over a litigation strategy that we that we discussed earlier, and it's a sort of a way to say, from society, civilized society, you say, well, if you if you want to do that, you know, we have the, ch- the chief justice Frank Clark saying it's their choice, you know, mm. and and everyone would would re- I think any reasonable person would believe it's an, an abomination. 
um, that if you if you choose to do that, society then can choose to yeah. maybe take that that honor from you as a message. That's all. There's mm. nothing. This person is not doing anything unlawful. Mm. This and we're we're not doing anything unlawful. We're not asking the council to mm. do anything unlawful. But last night, actually, when it came up that we, we there was talk about um, and, and it doesn't. It, it, it's very important yeah. to state. Uh, I, I think yeah. uh, it doesn't imply any wrongdoing. Absolutely. No. Uh, on the part of no. Brother Garvey personally. No, not at no. all. And and, and the mm. brothers, the, I've said mm. this every time I'm on the programme, it's more about the leadership team. The brothers, there's great brothers in Ireland, mm. you know, and, and we'd be helping those mm. 80 brothers, those 80-year-olds, yeah. you know, yeah. them. Mm. But last night, the victims, at the talk of writing to the government, and that was an amendment, mm. I think the Labour Party were putting forward to write to the government, they laughed at that. Mm. Like, writing to the government, they said, that is a low bar. How low do you want the bar to be? Okay. Write to the government and not not upset the person that actually instigated it in the first place. Like you know, okay. will we write to the government? Like mm. it's a, it's, yeah. a, it's okay. You can see that uh, glass window behind yeah. you, Maeve. They're waving frantically at me, telling yeah. me to wind up, and I'm going to have to wind up. Um, but I, I, I suppose uh, you don't know. People will consider any motion and they vote as they see fit. Um, you don't know how people will vote, how the councillors will vote. Uh, but what you want is for your motion to be tabled. Yes, absolutely. And that there's debate and fair debate and um, sensitive debate about it. And my son said to me last week when I was talking about all this, because it is a, a tough subject. My son said to me, Mommy, um, there's a quote from Emma Watson, and I think it's very appropriate. It's, if not now, when? If not us, who? Like, we have to stand up and be counted in this. Thank you both for coming into us uh, this morning. I have to leave there, but thank you. Thank as you. I say, independent councillor in Louth, Maeve Yore, and also with us uh, this morning, Damien O'Farrell, representing uh, victims of child sexual abuse at the hands of Christian Brothers. He's also an independent councillor in Dublin City Council. Michael Reed on LMFM. I was trying to ignore the control tower, <laughs> but he kept waving, he kept waving. Uh, but it means we really only have a, a couple of minutes left. Uh, in that time, let me bring you some of uh, the comments uh, that have come to us. Tom, thank Thank you for texting this morning. He says the Christian brothers, the mind boggles. They should be made to change their name to the not so Christian brothers. Disgusting. Where are the politicians? Because they certainly know, but they seem to be sitting on their hands. And he says the politicians didn't show up to meetings about Michael Shine either. Hundreds of victims. Politicians didn't care then and they don't seem to care now. But will they show up if the cameras are there? Thanks, Tom. As I say, David in Dundalk has been in touch with us as well about this. And he says, I hope the survivors get the justice that they deserve. Can't understand the council's stance on the motion. We need to stand with the victims, not put barriers up against them. Fair play to all of the people, councillors included, who are ultimately trying to do the right thing. It's time to stand up and lead by example. Special mention on that note uh, from a listener who says, Councillor Maeve Yor is a person who will always champion those whose voices cannot be heard, won't be heard by governing bodies. Her track record is for tireless work for people with disabilities and it's unmatched. Keep going, says our caller. Thank you indeed. To other topics, somebody says, talk about ripping us off, shopping and pricing. Another more serious issue is the outright robbery taking place in our shops. I went to two branded shops and when I purchased only two items, three euro and four euro, comes to seven euro, uh, I went to pay and I was charged seven fifty. I, I complained and the, the reply was, oh, 
sorry, somebody didn't program the price correctly at the till. I said, that's a nice little profit, 450 as only one in 10 people complain. Plus, when buying a lot more shopping, this theft is hidden. Plus, I believe it's not an isolated issue and may be contributing to inflation if scaled up. Uh, that's a, a listener in term, in fact, and thank you indeed. That reminds us of why everything used to be one ninety nine or ten ninety nine, so that you waited to get your penny back, uh, back in the days when we used cash. Uh, thank you indeed uh, for that, as I say. Another text uh, from somebody who says, Michael, half and all of the other schemes are designed to make landlords rich. The money that's been paid out over the years to landlords could have built local authority houses. Most of the houses in Dundalk were local authority houses at one time. Staff in public health nursing homes get paid sick leave uh, and uh, they're also paid for COVID leave but staff in private don't get any of those benefits and they're paid lower wages and not enough staff. Uh, Thanks uh, for that uh, as well. Uh, Not uh, signed uh, but it's uh, another one of those uh, WhatsApp messages uh, that have come to us. A really odd story from uh, Nursing Homes Ireland uh, this morning about uh, the difference in funding and indeed terms and conditions for staff Uh, between the public and private nursing homes in uh, the country. Uh, Another text uh, that has come to us uh, from somebody about uh, GAA Go uh, that says the GAA football games should be on television. The main games, Kerry, Mayo, etc. What are we paying our television licence for? Spelling... Uh, thinking of uh, I'm sorry, uh, thinking of old age people uh, that are housebound, especially that's what it is, for, uh, of old age uh, pensioners and people who are housebound uh, turn on the telly to watch a match but it's not on, it's on something that's on your phone that they don't have and so on. Thank you indeed uh, for taking the time to text us today if you did. If not, maybe you'll do it on Monday because we'd love to hear from you. But that's all we've time for for today. Our time is up. Maggie McGuire researched today. Chris Murray was in the control tower, waving like a lunatic. I'm Michael. God willing, we'll see you for our next programme on Monday morning at 9am right here on LMFM. Good morning. Bye-bye. The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at lmfm.ie Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.